Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back to this special holiday podcast. The bonus is that it's absolutely free. I mentioned at the end of the last one that I was going to take a week of leave in Korea, and indeed I am taking a week of leave, but there was a bit of tidying up I thought I should do about ADEX and some other matters are worth touching on, and I was just a bit worried that if I left it too long, by the time I got back to Australia, I might have been, I might have been distracted or forgotten or, or something like that. Look, it's an amazing country. I mentioned before, um, I've ticked off one of the obsessions in that I've seen the 80,000 printing blocks that uh, that were a national project starting in 1237, 200 years before uh, the Europeans inven- invented printing. And in Gyeongju, where I've just spent three nights, I came across the world's first known stellar observatory built in the year 633 AD. I mean, this stuff is truly amazing. And I I would suggest whoever has been responsible for for promoting Korea internationally for the last 30 years needs to retire. I mean, more needs to be known about this country. It's also connected by a fantastic train system, the KTX, which is actually quite cheap, you know, high-speed service. You're traveling at 250, 300 kilometers an hour just about everywhere. Everything runs on time. Anyway, uh, now to the serious side of, of things. First of all, a correction. I'm quite happy to dish it out. So on the occasions when I get it wrong or need to make a correction, I can promise everyone that uh, I do that. That's my standard practice. I snarkily mentioned last time that I hadn't seen any Australian uniformed people at ADEX. Well, I have to correct that. I did see one person myself in a RAF uniform, and uh, I was told by some of the other journalists that they had seen someone from the Australian Army. So I have to eat my words. There were at least two uniformed people present. Also, Defence Minister Richard Miles made a visit. I didn't see him. He didn't let the media know. That's fine. The minister's a very busy person. I'm sure he's got better things to do than, uh, than spend time with us. It would have been nice. But um, anyway, good on him for making the effort to turn up. And I'll come back to ADEX in a moment, but I also want to, well, have to really uh, continue to touch on the incredibly sensitive topic of Israel and the situation with the Gaza Strip. And I realize uh, everything is still incredibly raw emotionally after the horrible attacks by Hamas on October the 7th, which, of course, you know, that those sorts of atrocities just cannot be justified. But I will say this to all of my Jewish friends, that bombing and starving two million Palestinians might not be the best way to go. I'm just saying, I don't have a solution, but I suspect that this current path isn't the correct one. It's just going to lead to intergenerational hostility and more violence, and I I don't see a happy outcome. And I hope, by the way, that by making what I regard as that perfectly obvious and common sense remark that I'm not now screamed at as being an anti-Semite because I am not. Just as good friends are allowed to occasionally offer some helpful guidance, you know, to each other when we see somebody 
you know, a close friend who's doing the wrong thing or perhaps are in danger of making a, a bad mistake. As a good friend, you have a duty, I think, to warn them. Australia's support for Israel is completely beyond question. I mean, along with the United States and a handful of other countries, our solidarity with Israel has been apparent ever since 1948. Absolutely rock solid, cannot be questioned. And I think from that position of trust and strength, we should be able to occasionally counsel the need to just change direction. That's as much as I'll risk saying on, as I say, what I realise is an incredibly sensitive topic. Okay, to go back to ADEX, it was, as usual, a showcase of remarkable technology that South Korea now produces. And this country has been successfully implementing a long-term plan. I, I touched on that last time, talking in a general sense. But we'll talk a little bit more about defence industry. In the 80s and into the 90s, and this is, by the way, at about the same time that Australia started ramping up, and I do have to emphasise, with pretty much the same defence budget. I'll come back to that. South Korea very aggressively used offsets to compel producers of weapons systems, helicopters, tanks, aircraft. If they wanted to win work in Korea, they had to set up to, I, th I have a memory in some cases, you know, offsets exceeded the value, uh, the dollar value or the one value of the contract itself. And the country, but by this sort of fairly tough economic mechanism, not very popular with, with companies for a whole range of reasons, gradually built up its skill base. And I mean, I could do it sector by sector. They've done it with helicopters, with tanks, and with combat aircraft. But let's use submarines because that's quite topical in Australia at the moment. And both countries, purely coincidentally, of course, in the mid-80s, both decided that they wanted to be seriously in the submarine business. Australia, of course, contracted for six Collins-class submarines, and we have been crewing and operating them successfully since then. In exactly the same time frame, and again, I emphasise with the same overall defence budget, Korea now has 22 operational conventional diesel electric submarines of three generations. They have three more currently under construction, the first of which I think is undergoing sea trials, and another three will be ordered around 2026. So... Australia, six Collins, Korea on their way to close to 30 advanced conventional submarines. As one generation has been approaching the end of its build, Korea has contract contracted for the next generation. With the first batch, okay, Australia was a little bit more aggressive. We wanted all six submarines built in Australia, even though the bow and stern sections of Collins came from Sweden. That's a slight digression. That's another long story. I can come back to that in the future. Korea had their first submarine built in Germany with Korean participation. They had their workers with the German yard HDW, which then became TKMS. Then the rest of those submarines were built, or I should say assembled 
in Korea from kits provided from Germany. Once that batch was out of the way, Korea then moved to the second batch of submarines, all built in Korea, to a German Type 212 design, but with a lot of the componentry and subsystems coming from Korean industry. So you can see, moving from the assembly of kits to then moving towards a hybrid German-Korean technology boat with all of the work carried out in Korea to the third generation of an all-Korean submarine. Having said that, there are still some parts of the submarine that are imported, I think, uh, the inertial navigation system and, and, and things like that, some of the specialised bits and pieces. They've also exported three submarines to Indonesia, and they are in pretty serious discussions with Canada, that, that Canada looks like they will have a requirement for between 8 and 12 diesel electric submarines. So what a huge contrast. I mean, it, it, is, it is just so stark. So Korea has had a plan and has stuck to it. Australia did have a plan in the mid-80s, but it was just abandoned. Anyway, so let's talk about what happened in Australia, because this is a subject that I am qualified to say something about. I made a documentary, actually. Well, I was the journalist, but Capital 7 TV back then made a documentary. I and a camera crew travelled to Germany and Sweden to look at the, uh, at the competing designs. I got to know quite well both bidding teams, but the Swedes in particular, for a whole range of, of reasons. And, and so I was a close observer to the way that the Australian Submarine Corporation was set up. And I'll just mention in 1994, I also started work for Thomson Sintra, who were the suppliers of the sonar suite on Collins. And then in 1998, I joined Celsius, which owned Cockham's, the submarine designer. And we also owned 49% of the Australian Submarine Corporation. And by a series of freakish coincidences, I was on the board of the holding company of Celsius Pacific. And, and I mention that not to big note myself, but to give people a bit of context and to explain this isn't just a journalist raving. This is one of the rare areas uh, where I did have some quite, quite a lot, actually, of direct involvement. Now, there's a very good book on this topic by Derek Wolner and Peter Ewell. I recommend it. I would say that uh, it has about 90% of the story of, of Collins. And I'm in a position to add in just an extra one or two missing percent of the full story. So 1987, Cockham's is selected, not without controversy. The, the German bid was considered to be the most likely, the lowest risk or all of that. The Swedes took the Australians at their word. And rather than just supplying submarine platforms, they decided to create a submarine construction industry. And that was reflected just in the the shareholding of the Australian Submarine Corporation. Cockham said 25%. The US giant program manager, CBI, Chicago Bridge and Iron, heavily involved in US nuclear programs, uh, they had 25%. Wormald, who back then were actually a high-technology 
construction, I don't want to say powerhouse, but very progressive Australian company, and AIDC, the Australian Industry Development Corporation, a government body providing mainly export finance. And that was that was it. The makeup of that consortium changed over time. The CBI were only ever in there for the first few years to get the program up and running with all of the methodologies that the United States Navy used. We did that to make the RAN as happy as possible. And Wormald, this very successful company, they were totally destroyed by a Singaporean asset stripper by the name of Lee Ming-Ti, who saw a fantastic commercial opportunity. He realized that Wormald, broken up and sold off, its various divisions sold off, was worth far more money than the company was as a whole. So he made, I don't know, a couple of billion dollars out of that, but uh, but that was the that was the end of, of Wormel. Very successful program in terms of getting construction moving very quickly, getting a lot of Australian companies involved, transferring a great deal of IP to meet this need, this aim of giving Australia a submarine building industry. Now, the Swedes started to encounter problems in the mid-1990s with, actually from about 1996 onwards, with the test and trials program for, for the first Collins class. And there were a whole lot of noise issues and things like that. And the Swedes couldn't understand why it was that the Royal Australian Navy was sort of panicking about all of this. I mean, Cockham's has built generations of submarines, and with the first of class, it always takes time. To put it very simply, when you are quietening a submarine, all that you can do, I mean, in terms of the laws of physics, is to remove the dominant sound source and then look for the next one. And so it's very much an iterative process. And the Swedes were methodically working through that, and there were a couple of propeller issues, but but same sort of deal. This sort of stuff is a bit of fine-tuning. And also, the RAN were changing their requirements. Now, that's a, that's a recurrent theme that relates to a whole lot of activities. And, and things like the original CONOPS of the concept of operations of the submarine was that during a 60-day mission, the RAN insisted that it would never fully surface. It would only ever stick its snort mast up when it was recharging the diesels. Now, that changed, and that meant that the exhaust system that the Swedes had lovingly designed and produced where the gas, exhaust gas came out from the back of the fin when it was underwater, well, when that was out of the water, it made a shocking amount of noise. No surprise there. So more work had to be done into that. At the same time, you know, the reputation of the Swedes is getting trash, particularly in the media. The Swedes think that somehow the government must be behind all of this negativity. It, 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 was, it was a pretty unhealthy climate because it was kind of a mutual failure to understand. It was the first export deal of this sort of magnitude for a submarine that uh, the Cockhams had signed requiring construction in another country, so they weren't really used to the Australian environment. And the Australians, by and large, didn't have a clue what was involved in a test and trials program. So there was a lot of a lot of unhappiness about that. Anyway, sort of fast forward just a little bit to the year 2000, 
There was a change of uh, shareholding in Sweden with Saab acquiring Celsius, which owned Cockham's and which had previously entered into a deal with the German company HDW to merge Cockham's with HDW. Bear with me, this will all make sense. Not a particularly good deal, by by the way, but it, it took a few years for that to play out. Defence and the government saw an opportunity to use what are called their preemptive rights through their shareholding in AIDC, basically to kick the Swedes out, to nationalise the, the company on the logic. And this was said to me, actually, by a couple of people. You, you know, you, you guys have, have uh, underperformed. These submarines aren't working as you told us they would. We'll get the US to come in and fix it all for us. It was really just as naive and silly as, as that. Contrast that with Korea, a vibrant submarine industry built on successive generations of more advanced submarines with higher levels of Korean industry involvement to the point where now they are producing arguably the world's best conventional diesel electric submarine with submarines with air independent propulsion. And we have six aging. So class, um, who do you think got that one right? Australia or Korea? Just on, since we're on submarines, I'm, uh, I'll, I'll just conclude with a final brief word on, on that one. Uh, in the current edition of Asia Pacific Defense Reporter, there's an interview with um, the Chief of Navy, Vice Admiral Mark Hammond. I'm very grateful that, uh, that he was able to spare the time uh, to do that. Always happy to, to speak with somebody with, uh, with his knowledge about what's going on. And by the way, in an interview, it's not really done to start, you know, squabbling and, and, and nitpicking with, with, with people. You try and get through the, the main issues of substance. But I will say that what really struck me, and again, I'll also qualify that by saying that uh, Vice Admiral Hammond has referred me to Vice Admiral Mead, who is the one who is responsible for AUKUS. I've made a request to speak with Admiral Mead because what really jarred with me was Admiral Hammond, Vice Admiral Hammond, saying that the justification for getting second-hand Virginia-class submarines was that Australia somehow... Oh, no, no, it was about the disposal of submarines in Australia. And he said it it, uh, it really has to be a sort of cradle-to-grave experience. Well, obviously, no. By acquiring second-hand Virginia-class submarines, it, it's not a cradle thing, at all, we're acquiring these things when they're already 15 or 20 years old. So it's like somehow claiming that you've been through the entire parental experience when you've gone out and adopted a 15-year-old teenager. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I'll add on top of that. Who wrote this rule book about buying nuclear submarines, either new or secondhand. Where, where does it say that the country that's buying them also has to dispose of them? There isn't a rule book. It doesn't exist. No one's ever done this before. Australia can decide. We can decide what, how we're going to approach it. And again, I circle back to the, the thing about the disposal of submarines in Australia. That's just wrong, no matter how you look at it. The United States already has the infrastructure in place for disposing of submarines. At the very least, return the submarines to them. Or here's an even better idea. If by buying them, 
It also means we have to dispose of them. Why don't we say to the United States, well, forget that, that's not going to happen. How about we lease them instead? A lease arrangement. Why not? The only previous time that this sort of deal has been done was between, to my knowledge, between India and Russia, involved two classes of submarines. My Indian friends tell me that that was a reasonable learning experience. Not all good, but certainly not all bad. Submarines returned back to Russia for disposal. Not that Russia has disposed of any of their nuclear submarines. Anyway, that's it. I hope that uh, the update from Korea has been interesting. I'll continue my tours and speak with you when I'm back home next week. Thank you and bye for now. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.